Welcome to Optivate, a podcast for mobile marketers brought to you by Remerge. Take a short break from your screen and listen to what's working in mobile marketing and what's not, straight from the people who are doing it now. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Aptivate podcast. I'm Maria Lannon, VP of Sales here at Remerge, and on today's show, I'm honored to be sitting down with industry veteran David Murphy. David was editorial director and co-founder of Mobile Marketing Magazine, which David launched as an online news analysis and advice portal in November 2005. After 18 years at Mobile Marketing Magazine, David is getting back to freelance writing. David, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's an honor to be asked to take part, Maria. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, I'm excited for our conversation. I guess to get started, it'd be helpful to hear more about your background, where are you based, and what are you up to these days? I'm in the UK, just outside London. As you mentioned in your intro, I've just picked up a freelance career that I left off many years ago. When I first started freelancing, I was actually writing about living room technology, and it was quite interesting. But honestly, I had van loads of TVs and video recorders turning up every week for me to review, and I thought there's got to be a better way of making a living than this, one that's slightly less disruptive. And it was around the time of the birth of the internet, 1995, when I'd uh, gone freelance and I started keeping an eye on what was happening with this e-commerce thing. I think Amazon launched that year or perhaps a year before. And I just followed what companies, brands were doing on the internet, managed to get some commissions writing about it for some of the marketing trade press in the UK. And then as the years went on into the 2000s, People started talking about mobile as a marketing channel, and I started covering that again for the marketing trade press, and it then flowed a little bit. There were attempts at getting a mobile marketing industry going in the early 2000s, but it didn't really get anywhere. The bandwidth wasn't there. The handsets weren't there. So it all just disappeared, more or less. And then around 2005, things started happening again. You were hearing noises about companies doing stuff, and I thought, well, now maybe is the time that this industry gets its own trade magazine. And I launched Mobile Marketing Magazine online in November 2005 just to try and help people keep up with what was going on in the industry. And 18 years later, I thought, I've been doing this for long enough now. I need to, I'd never held down any job for more than five years before that. So I need to change the scenery. So I've left that to somebody else now, and I'm back to doing some freelancing, some writing, little bits of event hosting for companies as well. I've hosted a lot of events over the past few years, and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it's nice to have the freedom to pick and choose what to do. I'm curious, with so much changing around that time, especially early on when mobile started to become a mobile marketing channel, how did you stay on top of all of the changes that were happening and how did you learn about it? Because it was obviously right in the beginning, not many people knew how to use mobile as a channel for marketing. How were you able to stay on top of trends and analyze all of that? Well, I think there were other people doing what I was doing as well. There were a few people blogging about mobile and what was happening. So I guess we all followed each other. I used to read the FT, the Financial Times, every day and I was writing for them um, a little bit as well and they were always very keen on covering new technologies so some of the nationals were covering it and the other thing is when an industry starts emerging like that you just get a lot of events springing up obviously some people are after trying to make a fast book other people are in it for the long haul 
But I just got myself out to as many events as I could and tried to sit and soak it all up and just try and find out who was doing what. And I think also once you get yourself on that process of trying to cover a particular beat, a particular industry, then the people that are doing stuff, they're very keen to keep you in the loop as to what they're doing. So, yeah, I think it becomes a self-fulfilling thing, really. You're trying to keep up to speed. Your black book, your contacts book is ever-growing as more people get in on the act. And before there are lots and lots of titles out there, lots of big titles covering the space, they're very keen to keep any journalist that's willing to give a bit of time to it in the loop as to what they're doing. Nice. So you've been in the industry since, let's say, like the birth of mobile. And I'm sure there's been countless changes that you've observed. I think it'd be helpful to understand, walk us through a lot of the changes that did happen over your time at Mobile Marketing Magazine. Yeah. So I guess the very first sort of incarnation of companies trying to do stuff on mobile was around the year 2000. There was a company called Zagme which was run, there could have been other people involved, but the two people that I knew were involved were a guy called Russell Buckley, who went on to be the first employee at AdMob, which was subsequently bought by Google, first mobile ad network, and a lady called Helen Keegan, who's always done a lot in mobile circles and is still on the scene today. And they had a thing at a shopping centre in just outside London in Essex called Lakeside. And if you were heading to Lakeside and you wanted to get involved with this campaign, you would just send a text message to a short code with a number. And that number was the number of hours that you were going to be in the shopping centre. So just as you pulled up in the car, you would text the word two to this number. And they knew that Maria now, who has opted into this promotion, she's going to be in the shopping centre for two hours and she's up for offers on a mobile phone, be it come in to get a coffee or get 10% off everything in store today. And that was quite an interesting you would notify the shopping center that you were going to be there because there was some incentivization. You would receive some promotion of some sort. If there were 100 shops in the shopping center and 50% of them were opted into this campaign, they would all then get a notification that this mobile phone number belonged to this person is now live in the shopping center. She's out there going hit her up with some offers. And that business failed. It was probably ahead of its time. And they actually went to get some funding the day after 9-11 happened. And the investors got cold feet and they backed out. And as Russell told me many years later, they probably made the right decision for the wrong reasons. So that was a very sort of early incarnation of mobile. From there, the next thing that happened was a, a very early version of the mobile internet, something called WAP which was uh, stood for Wireless Application Protocol. And it was very clunky. The bandwidth was very limited in terms of how long it would take a mobile web page to appear on your phone. The devices didn't have very big screens. The companies that built mobile websites and tried to get involved in this didn't really see any great results from it. It was a poor user experience. So again, as I hinted at during the intro, it came and then it went and nobody really missed it. The other stuff that was going on, it's interesting that most of the stuff was happening was on an opt-in basis because it was largely related to text messaging. There was a thing in Europe called the communications, completely lost my thread in terms of what this was called, but it was like the first data privacy act, communication and electronic privacy act or something along those words. Please Google it after the podcast listeners and you'll find out what I'm trying to say. And that was very strict in terms of you couldn't just start hitting people with messages 
on their mobile phone without their permission. So when I spoke to some of the mobile marketing agencies that were around at that time, and if there's anybody of a certain age listening to this, they might remember names like One Two Snap and Aerodian and Flytex, uh, Incentivated. And I asked them what difference this act was, this piece of legislation was going to make to this nascent industry. And they all said none whatsoever because everything we're doing is on a permission basis. It's such a personal channel. We wouldn't abuse that. And that was the case. And it's interesting, just fast forward to where we are now, that all changed once advertising became a thing on mobile. No longer was it about reaching out to specific people that are giving their permission to do so. Now it was about blanket targeting anybody who's on a mobile phone that happens to be in a certain app or looking at a certain website. And as we've seen, it's all gone so far that the sort of tide has turned now in terms of data privacy, lots of regulations have come in and then Companies like Apple and Google are making their own moves with a view to trying to make the experience a bit less spammy for people on their mobile phones. But I guess I can't let any history of mobile marketing pass without talking about the one event that really triggered the everything that followed, and that was Apple getting into the phone business. With the launch of the iPhone in 2007, prior to that point, there have been some nice phones. Motorola had their Razor phone where you opened it up and one half of the phone was what everyone thought was a reasonably large screen. And then all of a sudden, Apple, who'd never even made a phone before, they made MP3 players, they made computers. They come out with a phone that just has every other phone maker saying, why the, insert your own word, did we not think of that? The whole screen is a keyboard. The whole screen is there for listen to music, watching TV, whatever it might be. So obviously that really put the cat among the pigeons and got lots of other companies to up their game. The likes of Samsung and some of the other handset makers also really spelt the beginning of the end in terms of handsets for people like Nokia and BlackBerry. And again, for a lot of people on the listening to the podcast might not remember, there was a real format war that went on with mobile phone operating systems. Now it's all about iPhone and Android that you had Samsung with Barda, you had Symbian, and two or three other operating systems that at one point were all competing for attention. And it wasn't as clear-cut as people probably think it might have been that iPhone and Android would emerge as a winners from that format war. And then obviously following on from the launch of the iPhone came the launch of the App Store, and the rest is history or as people like to say, because that just created this whole new world of apps, utilities for the mobile phone, where basically it becomes whatever you want it to be. It's a way of, I know, unlocking a door. It's a way of enjoying music. It's a way of enjoying TV. It's a way of controlling your heating from 300 miles away. It's a way of controlling anything in the house through some of the connected systems that people are using in their homes now. So I think 2007 with the launch of the iPhone, 2008 with the launch of the App Store was the real start of mobile as the tool that people know it as today. And also as once apps came on the scene as a way of really engaging with people on a one-to-one basis. If you could A, get them to download your app to their phone, B, get them to use it and C, get them to give up a bit of information about themselves so that you can actually make that app more useful to each of them individually by showing you, Maria, certain things and showing me other things because we've told the brand that you're into jogging and I'm not. I'm into movies, for example. So 
yeah, you can't underestimate the importance of the launch of the App Store in 2008. Were you an early iPhone adopter? No, and there was a very good reason why not, actually. I fell in love with a typing app called SwiftKey, and it's probably not unique now. There's probably other apps that do the same thing, but it's a fantastic predictive text app. An example of how it works, if I was to type an email that said, Dear Maria, I'm so sorry, I can't make the podcast recording today because I've lost my voice. And then let's say I accidentally deleted that email. I go back to the email app on my phone using SwiftKey and I type the word dear. And the next word it suggests for me is Maria. And then the next word is whatever the next word is in that sentence I just read out to you. And I can basically recompose the whole email with one tap per word. In SwiftKey's early days, Apple didn't allow third-party, certainly third-party keyboard apps on the iPhone for whatever reason, I don't know. And that kept me on Android, even though I could see lots of reasons for migrating to an iPhone. So as soon as that rule was dropped and SwiftKey was available for the iPhone, I was in. It's almost like a more sophisticated T9 word. Yeah. And as I say, we gave it an award, I think the first year we ran our awards in 2010 as the most effective app from memory. And I'm sure other apps out there can do all the stuff that SwiftKey can, but it was just at the time groundbreaking. I also realized I just assumed that you had an iPhone and then you mentioned that you were an Android user. And (laughs) it's very funny because majority of people, like I would say majority of the population probably, at least in US, UK, probably shift more towards iPhone and are more heavy iPhone users than Android. So it's, (laughs) I did just make that assumption. (laughs) Yeah, I think I haven't looked at, and to be honest, we've never really gone big on devices. There are plenty of other sites out there that can cover the launch of new devices. Our sweet spot where we've been able to get the content has always been what are brands doing on mobile? How are they engaging with people? So we were fascinated when Marks and Spencer, well-known UK retailer. You wouldn't have thought necessarily it would be among the vanguard of technical innovators, but they set up a, a mobile website with transactional capabilities quite early on. And I think it was something like a, it was either a, yeah, I think it was a £5,000 sofa that they put some PR out. That was the biggest sale they'd made to date that somebody had bought on a mobile phone. So we've always been fascinated by how brands have tried to use the mobile as a way of engaging with people. And there's been lots and lots of examples. If you think of the advent of uh, augmented reality, and just one example there would be IKEA, the furniture retailer, and they built augmented reality into their apps so that you could spring up one of their products. I think actually it was used in conjunction with their physical paper catalogue. And you would scan the thing that you're interested in, a wardrobe, a sofa, whatever it might be. And then you could virtually place that in your living room or whichever room it was going to go in. And you could see whether it would fit and whether it would look right and this sort of thing. So it's just been interesting to see the different ways in which different companies, different brands have looked at all the capabilities of mobile phones. And how can we tap into that and provide something useful for our customers? I want to go back to what you were mentioning before with letting a retailer know or particular shopping center that you were in the vicinity and that you were going to be shopping and how that has evolved today where there is all the location-based data and 
if I am near a store or particular retailer or on demand, you might get a push notification today reminding you to go in or reminding you that you have a discount or something like that. So it's interesting to see that that developed so early on and how it's evolved today. Yeah. And I think what was interesting to me with location, which was always one of mobile biggest strengths, is the way that that evolved. So yes, there is still a scenario whereby you're walking past your local Starbucks and you might get a message because you've opted in to say, yeah, ping me if I'm close by. But you had companies probably feels like 10 years ago, but maybe a little less than that. Companies like Bliss that would start tracking where a device had been to over a period of time. So this device here has been to four different car dealerships in the past two weekends. Therefore, the owner of this device is in the market for a new car and those sorts of inferences. So not just not just targeting people based on where they were at any given point in time, but on their location history, as it were. And again, as I mentioned before, that some of that still happens. The audience for it has been reduced as things like Apple's app tracking transparency frameworks come in and people have been made more aware of their rights to and abilities to stop an app tracking it, tracking their movements or tracking what other websites they look at or what other apps they use. But it still happens, obviously. What are your thoughts on that? Today, new users are a lot more savvy when it comes to advertising and understanding that apps and websites do track where they're going across the internet, across apps. And I think there is some incentive to opt in because you're going to be getting relevant content, but there is this fear of, is this company going to share my data and what are they going to do with it? Do you feel that we may see a change where people, I don't know, understand more about privacy and actually what's going into it and maybe more apt to opt in at this rate? I think, unfortunately, the the pendulum has swung so far that I can't really see the app owners, the app publishers getting people that have decided to opt out ever finding a reason to opt back in. The strongest message I ever see from anybody at that opt-in, opt-out point is if you want to see more relevant advertising, you should allow us to keep on tracking you. I don't think many people think of advertising as a great thing in their lives. But if I can see a more relevant ad, with a greater respect to an entire industry out there (laughs) that specializes in doing exactly that. I think sometimes you just got to be honest with yourself and is a message that says, if you opt out of being tracked, then the ads you see are going to be less relevant. I don't think for many people that's a strong enough argument. And this is where I think you've got some very good companies in the app engagement space, the likes of Airship and Swerve. I haven't heard from them for a while, but they were quite active with us a few years ago and their big argument is you've really got to treat the people using your app with respect and when you're onboarding them when they sign up and say yeah i've launched the app for the first time just be very careful about how far you want to push things how much information you want to ask for by all means ask them maybe for permission to send them notifications or whatever it might be but tell them why you want to do that we want to send you notifications because we want to make this app as useful as we can for you. And if we've got a sale going on, if it's a retail app, we think you might want to know about it. I think the message that I've heard from that type of company is that far too many app owners just don't give a good enough reason for people to share their data with them. 
And as data privacy becomes more of a thing, again, I've spoken to various companies whose USP is trying to convince app owners to say, just be completely upfront. Let people, if they want to, go into your app and just be able to see everything that's all the bits of data you want to collect on them, but also give them the opportunity to turn that off and also tell them why you want to collect that data and then let them make their own decisions. Probably only one or two percent of your users will ever bother to dig that deep, but it's worth doing them. I think one example that was quoted to me, and I did look at it, was the shoe retailer. And I'm trying to learn Spanish, so I'm now confusing myself as to whether it is zapatos.com. Is that an online shoe retailer? Mm -hmm. Good, which is the Spanish for shoes. So I think if you look at their app and you go into privacy or settings, unless it's changed since I looked at it a year ago, you'll see how far you can drill down and just see they're very, very open and transparent about all the data they want to collect for marketing purposes, for customer relationship purposes. And that's the way that the people advocating privacy are going, is to say, you can't hide from this stuff. People, are they have brains in their heads, so they're more aware than they've ever been of their rights. So why try and hide behind any opaque wall? Just tell them what you're collecting about them, what you'd like to collect about them, and why, and give them the option to say, I'd rather you didn't, thank you very much. You've also seen this now with the ad tracking transparency notifications that come up on your phone. There are companies that make it native to their app and also provide context as to what actually is happening. And I think that also helps with opt-in rates. So for example, Nike within their app, I don't know if you have it, but they actually explain what it means to opt in and what it means to opt out. And I think that's a great example of showing Number one, the value of opting in and also why and what's going to happen to your data and why they're asking for this information or to be able to collect this device ID. And so companies like that that really invest in that value exchange and also just their whole tech stack, because obviously it's not really an easy task to make it native to your app. A lot of dev work that probably goes into it. And of course, a company like Nike can do that. But I do think that it encourages other companies to probably follow suit. I've no idea. Nike, if you combine these supports through their app, then maybe I'll get it. I'm I'm not really in the market for running shoes these days. But I've no idea what that's done to their opt-in rates, likewise with Zapatos. But you'd like to think that it would move the needle in the right way through being open and transparent. Certainly, that's the game that everybody I hear talks, everybody I hear speaking at events talks, that you shouldn't be trying to hide away from this, you should embrace it and be upfront with people. When you look back at the last 18 years, what really stands out to you? There's been a number of things. We've talked about mobile as being quite a personal device. We've talked about how advertising came along with the ad mobbing around about 2006, and there's been a thing ever since. There must have been half a dozen, in my time editing the magazine, half a dozen schemes that would pay people to watch ads on their phone. The most famous one that some of your listeners might remember was a company called Blick, B-L-Y-K, and that was their whole premise, that basically you would get paid to watch ads on the phone. And there have been other ones before and after, and the premise is always the same. It's if you watch quite a lot of ads on your phone, you'll make a very small amount of money for each one. So that for maybe you watch 20 ads a day for a month, you might earn five pounds. 
And to me, it's just the numbers have never added up. And why would anyone put themselves through that level of exposure to advertising just to earn £5 in a month? Is it a demographic that any advertiser would be interested in? And also, I just don't understand how these things appear. If they don't fail, then they stop talking about themselves very quickly. There seems to be an initial bit of excitement of PR announcing the launch of these things. And then six months later, they've either gone or you never hear from them again. So that's been one standout thing for me. Again, coming back to advertising, it's just the way that people have use the capabilities of the phone to target advertising. So you've got location, as we've spoken about before, and then things like the weather. Again, your phone knows whether you're in Chicago or in San Francisco. It knows what the weather is in each of those places. And you've seen ad campaigns whereby the temperature drops below a certain level and it triggers advertising for winter clothes, for example, and it trips above a certain level and it triggers advertising for barbecues and there's been some really clever stuff done in terms of using device capabilities for targeting talked about augmented reality with ikea some of the car makers audi stands out have also used this to sort of offer people virtual tours of cars without ever going near a showroom just being able to see what the car's going to look like inside outside what it would look like in this color in that color with this type of wheel trim with that type of wheel trim if wheel trims are a thing, I'm not really a petrol head, but you get the idea. You can tailor it any way you want. And then one of the interesting things, if you were to go to the Hostel World app, this is like an Airbnb for hostels or hotels.com for hostels. They use Google Translate on there, or they did the last time I looked at it, so that you and I could be having a conversation. But somebody could be in Japan and they want to book a hostel for the night and they don't speak Japanese, so they speak into their phone. And then they hold it up and the Japanese hostel owner hears what they had to say in Japanese. Now, it seems like science fiction, but I remember Eric Schmidt, when he was running Google, speaking at Mobile World Congress probably 10 years ago. And he said, what you've got to remember is that the phone is really, or words to the effect, the phone is not the all-powerful thing here. It's a thin client device. The power is up in the server farms in the cloud. So it's not beyond the realms of imagination that you can imagine that two people could be having a conversation, one in English, one in Japanese, just as I've described, and they're hearing each other in their own language because the phone is taking the input and it's sending it up to the very powerful servers to process and do the translation into Japanese in milliseconds, and then it's coming out the other end. Without rambling on too much about different examples, it's just the way in which people have always looked for opportunities on mobile to harness some different aspects of the device's capabilities to either offer a better experience to consumers or to target them in a way that nobody had thought of targeting them before. Yeah, I mean, like how powerful is that to be able to leverage your phone to have a conversation with somebody in an entirely different language? And today it's something we take for granted where even five years ago, six years ago, like that would have been impossible to do. And a company like that is probably so much more successful because now users may be more apt to use it because they're not going to be discouraged traveling to another country and not being able to communicate with a homeowner or in the, if the likes of Airbnb or something like that. 
in general terms, it's just as I alluded to earlier, the fact that this thing has just become the remote control for your life, especially if you're of a certain age. I remember the days before there were mobile phones, my kids who were 25 and 20. Two, I think <laughs> they don't remember those days and this has always been there for them and you hear these ridiculous stats that more than half the people in our survey would rather lose a finger than lose their phone because they just would not know what to do without it so it's just become the Swiss army knife for uh, modern life and I'm sure that phrase has been used a million times before but that's basically what it is. How old were your kids when they first got a mobile device? Oh, no, those are good questions. So if I've been doing the magazine 18 years, 2005, so the older one would have been seven. I think back in those days, the time when kids got their phones was when they started going to secondary school. So 11 years old, because that's when you were unleashing them to walk to and from school on their own. It was a little bit further than when you used to walk them to the one around the corner. So it was there primarily as a safety device initially. But I suspect that threshold has probably fallen by a few years now. You might not have a phone, but you'll definitely have a, some tablet to keep you amused while mum and dad are trying to do more important things. Yeah, I think I was probably around the same age. But of course, at that time, it was I'm um, a bit older than that. So it was like, I don't even think text message was a big thing. It was really just to be able to call my parents when I was walking home from school or something as basic as that. I think it, I would get in trouble or something if someone texted me because it was it cost so much money. <laughs> Here's the thing, the WhatsApp messages that ping backwards and forwards just among my family group. And sometimes I just pick up the phone and actually ring whichever person I'm messaging because it's going to be easier. And no one ever thinks of doing that. I remember going to a Google event and they asked for a volunteer and this volunteer came to the stage and said, right, 10 things you can do with your mobile phone. And he said, okay, I can watch Netflix, I can listen to Spotify, I can do my email, I can send uh, a text message, I can do WhatsApp. And he got to about eight and then he was stuck. And they said, can anybody help him with one or two other things? And somebody said, hey, you can make phone calls. And he said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you can do that, can't you? And even now, too, with I think everyone's just so used to texting, especially with iMessage, WhatsApp, and now even with like audio messages, and it comes up as a text message, but you're listening to what the person's saying. And yeah, why can't you just pick up your phone and call them as you normally would? Yeah, this again, as you say things, it just sparks little thoughts. And I remember my eldest girl at the age of maybe 15 was in a phone shop trying to buy a BlackBerry because all the kids wanted a BlackBerry because of BlackBerry Messenger. But, um, I didn't know what was around the corner at that time, but I said, if your only reason for getting a BlackBerry is BlackBerry Messenger, then you're crazy. I'm sorry, but that's what we're all on. And of course, then all the OTT services, the WhatsApps and, and all the other social networks come in and it makes what any one operator device maker might offer on their phone completely irrelevant because you just have an overarching platform like WhatsApp that works across everything. Yeah, I remember that. I had a BlackBerry and the primary reason that I got one was because I wanted to be on BBM. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were not alone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Where do you see the industry going? We talked a little bit about, of course, privacy and how that's transforming everything. But what shifts do you see coming in the future or any predictions? I think the privacy juggernaut is unstoppable. You've got just a few days ago, Google started to deprecate the cookies on the Chrome browser for a very small percentage, 1% of its users with a view to rolling that out in 2024. And their privacy sandbox, there are 
different companies trying to come up with different solutions to the loss of personally personal identifiers on mobile. I think 2024, I think we'll know a lot more by the end of the year in terms of what the next phase of all that looks like. There's a lot of companies out there trying to find a, there is a gap in the market. It's where there's a market in the gap and they can come up with an alternative that is going to A, be useful to consumers and B, as a nice spin-off, make them loads of money because that's what most people on the tech side of the business are, are in business to do and why wouldn't they? You've got the social platforms. Again, because my kids are the age they are, just listen to them talk over Christmas and uh, their be real moment came and they did it because we were at the beach with the dogs. So that was a nice thing to do. But then they started talking and they said, do you be real every day? And said, no, not really, no, just some days. So that came and didn't really establish itself. Like all these things like Facebook and Google in the early days, the, the logic seems to be build an audience and then try and monetize it somehow. So obviously TikTok came up out of nowhere three years ago and has been very successful, both in terms of attracting users getting those users to create the content because that's what TikTok is. It's a user-generated platform and also getting brands involved as well. So it's always interesting to know where the next TikTok is coming from and for a moment be real, look like it might be that, but will it? Well, it doesn't. It appears to have lost momentum. So who knows what else is around the corner. Very interesting when I was working on the magazine this year to see a number of brands setting up shop in the metaverse, which is the sort of next incarnation of the internet, virtual stores where people can virtually walk around and shop. And I'm old enough to remember a thing called Second Life, which was, I think, in the late 90s when it first launched. And that was like an early version of something like Decentraland, an early metaverse destination where it looked for a moment like every brand was going to need to have a presence. And then it was obvious that wasn't the case, so people just ignored it. And it trundled along the background. If you Google secondlife.com, again, after the podcast, you'll see that they're very much back in the metaverse space now. So it's always interesting. If there was any brand that had looked at the internet, for example, and decided that this wasn't a space they needed to play in, then they would have been kicking themselves very quickly. A lot of brands still take that approach to the metaverse because it seems a little bit gimmicky. So will they ever look back and think, wow, we should have got in there early like those fashion brands and those e-commerce retailers did because they're now mopping up and everyone's spending their whole day with virtual reality headsets, walking around these worlds and spending money in them. And I think just as a general commentary on this space, you just don't know what you don't know. You don't know what's around the corner. There's always somebody trying to come up with a new way of leveraging this very personal relationship that people have with their phones to be able to, as I say, A, provide some utility to the owner of that phone and B, make some money out of it themselves. And that's going to continue during 2024. You'll see new business models emerge. Some will succeed, some won't. I guess some, I'm not really saying anything particularly insightful here, but that's just the way that in covering the mobile and digital marketing space over the last 18 years, that's just what happens. Somebody has a great idea, there's a land grab, other people jump in on the back of it, and the strongest wins out if that thing emerges as being a useful thing for people to have and successful businesses are built off the back of it. So more of the same, I think, in 2024. It will be interesting to see having a conversation like this at the end of the year and to see how far we've come or what has changed. Will TikTok still be 
one of the number one apps, social apps. Will people start using Be Real again? Who knows? <laughs> Somebody sent me a link to someone's predictions the other day, and I, I loved his opening gambit, which was a lot of the predictions I make each year turn out to be totally wrong, but I still feel there's value in doing them because it gets me thinking about what might happen. It gets people talking, it gets them thinking. And from that, people have ideas and things come out of it. So even if everything I say here turns out to be utter nonsense, at least I've given it some thought and given you some food for thought, which I thought was a great way of saying, I might have got this completely wrong, but so what? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a prediction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and of course, we can't, any discussion about what's happening in 2024, those two words, AI, obviously need to be part of. And so people are still trying to get beyond the initial hype and amazement at what this stuff can do to then, well, how can you harness the good bits and work in, in tandem with that so that you've got the best that humans have to offer with AI doing a lot of the grunt work and feeding into that so that the creative people can spend a bit more time being even more creative because they haven't had to do a lot of the legwork that AI can take on for them. Yeah, it's funny that we haven't even mentioned AI in this conversation. <laughs> but I think last year in 2023, everyone was talking about AI and what it could do. And now I feel that second half of 2023 and now heading into 2024, we'll actually see a lot of that applied and how companies are actually using it and how it's transforming the way that even companies hire because some of these roles that they've had, if we think about like creative optimization or things along those lines, like how AI is going to potentially take over and make it a lot easier for these companies. So it will be interesting to see how that transforms. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for joining today. Really appreciate it. And Really enjoyed our conversation, so thank you. Likewise, and I hope your listeners find it a little bit different. I know you're normally talking to people at the sharp end and on the coalface of mobile and app marketing, so on one level, this has been a bit of a ramble down memory lane for somebody who's forgotten half of what you heard in the first place anyway, but I hope it gives a bit of perspective. Some of your listeners who might not have been around in mobile from the very early days just to what was going on before they joined this amazing industry. Yeah, I know I learned a lot. And I've only been working in mobile for about six years, 10 years in ad tech. So definitely insightful for me. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Maria. So for our listeners, today's guest was David Murphy, former editorial editor and co-founder of Mobile Marketing Magazine. See you back here soon. Thanks for taking a break with us and listening to our weekly episode of Activate by Remerge. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. The more people you tell, the further we can spread these awesome mobile marketing insights. See you next week.